0: Corinthians 15. We are in a series in 1 Corinthians and learning about how the Gospel changes everything. How God forms a church through the proclamation and the impact of the Gospel. And so we've been making our way through, and we're coming near the end of the book. After about 10 years, we're finally finishing. And it's been rich, I think. The Lord has used the time. Um, so we'll get into that a minute. I just want to say it's great to be back. From what I hear you guys, last week we had a guest speaker here, um, Ari, and from what I hear you guys had a great time together worshiping the Lord and, and, uh, and hearing from His Word and so forth. So that's just uh, wonderful, wonderful to see God's goodness to us and and um, I know I, I was down at a Sister Church, Chesapeake Community Church down in Maryland, the church that w- had a large part in starting this church and sending up a team uh, to establish this church. And uh, as we said on Saturday, God has established us, and here we are uh, enjoying his goodness. And they, uh, they just love you guys. That was just one thing when I was there. Just how is it going? You know, just wanting to convey their care for us it's so good to be part of a family of churches that have people that sincerely do care and want to know, how's it going? How can I pray? So I was able to give them prayer requests and everything, and and, uh, they were eager to pray for us. So I'll just bring greetings on their behalf back home uh, to say, uh, Lord bless you from Chesapeake Community Church. Well, let's take a look at the text today and uh, see how the Lord will teach us this morning. But let us pray first. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank You for Your goodness to us. Lord, we thank You that You have not left us as orphans, that You, Holy Spirit, are here with us. and You've given us Your Word, and You've given us all things that we need for life and godliness. And Lord, You love to use the means of grace of the declaration of Your Word, the proclamation, the preaching, the teaching of Your Word. And we thank You. And Lord, we just ask for You to do just that this morning. By the power of Your Spirit, Lord, You would do these things. You would use an earthen vessel such as I am. And, and Lord, You would display Your glory and cause our eyes to be drawn to You, Lord God. We just look to You. We depend on You. I'm weak and there's nothing in and of myself for me to put my confidence in, but, Lord, we can put our confidence in You. And so we ask You to come and help us, Lord. Help us to hear. Lord, help us to hear even above the rattle of an air conditioning system, to hear from Your Word and to be edified, and you to be magnified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, We're in chapter 15, and and I want to read. Actually, uh, we're going to focus on verses 12 to 34 this morning, but I want to read starting in verse 1, because I think that context is important for us to understand what Paul is teaching, what the Lord is teaching us this morning. So starting in verse 1, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You can follow along. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some of you have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. 1 Corinthians to 34 I think what Paul's bringing us in this Scripture, in this section, is the truth that we cannot live the Christian life apart from the amazing reality of the resurrection of the Son of God. We cannot live the Christian life. There really is no Christian life apart from the amazing reality of the resurrection of the Son of God. He's bringing this truth to a people that came from a society, as we've seen before, who had many misperceptions of the gospel because of their culture. In their culture, they didn't believe really that the physical was good. They thought really that the perfect was the spiritual. In order to have perfection, you had to rid yourself of the physical. So they had this duality of the spiritual and the physical. They, they just didn't understand how things were biblically, really. That didn't fit in. The biblical view, where there's no duality of the spiritual and physical, didn't fit into their worldview. So they rejected. They rejected, really, the resurrection to some degree. Perhaps they thought heaven was just about spirits floating around, playing harps or something. That's a picture we can have, too. So We can see the Corinthians had the struggle, but it's important for us to know there's an aspect of that that we have as well. So this passage is not just for the Corinthians, and God knows that. It's also for us, because we can have misperceptions of the resurrection and of what God is going to do. So let's take a look at this passage. Let us learn about God's truth here. Let us be affected. There's a few things that I want to talk about this morning from this passage. The first thing is the necessity of the resurrection. And there's actually about seven things that Paul says in the section, in the first paragraph, that shows us why the the resurrection is necessary. So we're going to talk about the uh, the necessity of the resurrection. After that, we're going to talk about the nature of the resurrection. What is going to happen in this whole section? Paul goes on beyond our section today on that, but is a section in here where he talks about the nature. Why the resurrection? Why does it happen the way it does? Why the order that we see? And then we're going to go to the fruit of the resurrection, the, the knowledge and the fruit of the knowledge of the resurrection. What does it mean for life? And that's where Paul finishes in this section. So the necessity, the nature, and then the fruit of the resurrection. So let's take a look at the section here and see. First, Paul says that the resurrection is necessary to the gospel. The section the other week we looked at 1-11 through where Paul talks about the gospel. The gospel that they proclaimed. And then he says in our section, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The resurrection of Christ is part of the essentials in the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. According to the scriptures it says at the beginning of the section. So the gospel is necessary the resurrection is necessary to the gospel. It is an essential part of the gospel. And they must understand that that if you take out the resurrection, if you take out this aspect of the gospel, it's not the gospel. You've diminished the gospel, and there will be consequences as a result. An essential part of the gospel is that Christ rose bodily and spiritually, bodily and spiritually, from the grave, from the dead. He rose victorious over sin and death. And all who turn to Him and trust in Him, our response to the Gospel, will experience the same. New life and resurrection. That's a core point. And the Corinthians are thinking that they can somehow have a Gospel and not have the resurrection. He's saying, no. That that can't happen. Again, you know, looking at that, you may just think, well, you know, I just don't identify with that. But let me just talk a little bit about how we can do things like the Corinthians. We can have a view of God's ways and a view of God's world that separates in a sense the spiritual from the physical. That separates truth and ideas from action. Now we are to distinguish things the the truth and ideas from action, but they go together. God has made a universe where the physical and, and what we do fits in with the spiritual, what we believe and so forth. These things are not to be separated. Sometimes we can do that. The history of the Reformation is a wonderful one. They taught us to distinguish. The Reformation restored the word to us and taught us to distinguish faith and works, and we must distinguish faith and works. They're two separate things. It's, it's by faith, through faith, by grace that we're saved. It's not something we do. Christ has died for us. He has done it. He has presented a free gift, and it's through faith that we access that. That's not works. That is to be distinguished. But we can make an error like the Corinthians and start... Distancing faith from works and thinking that works don't matter. Thinking that the physical and what you do doesn't matter, but it never happens that way in Scripture. Yes, they are to be distinguished. There's faith and there's works. We must distinguish that because if we confuse that, we will essentially lose the gospel. We will lose grace. We will lose the wonder that God has done it all, not us. And by His gift of faith, we receive what He's done as we believe in turn. We must, we must hold on to the distinguishing of those two things, but we must be careful not to distance those two things. They go together. So though we may not do it to the degree the Corinthians do it, we can distance the reality of, of a life, of the impact of a life, of the things that we do from faith. We can distance in a sense the spiritual from the physical. We'll, we'll talk about that some more later. So the Corinthians were in danger of doing that, and The resurrection is necessary to the gospel. Take out the resurrection, you don't have a gospel. You don't have good news. It's necessary to our faith, he goes on to say. And if Christ has not been raised, in verse 14, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Our faith is in vain without the resurrection. There's no victory over sin. We're just believing in something that's not true. We're believing something that never happened. Our faith is based on an actuality. It's, a base, it's based on an objective thing that really occurred. Christ rose from the dead. It's not just a good story. It's not just a hopeful tale. It's not a fairy tale that we put our faith in, that we pretend is real. There's a lot of stuff out there in the world that's like that nowadays. There's stories about, that are trying to explain life, but they're not based in objective fact. The Gospel is objective fact fact Christ died he rose again our faith is based on that it's based on the reality that he rose again from the dead the resurrection in a sense is the linchpin of the gospel take away the resurrection there's no way to really say yes this was effective yes this was pleasing to God yes this actually happened when Christ was raised from the dead it said earlier he appeared to many He appeared to over 500 guys at one time. And Paul said, basically, you you want to check them out? Go. Most of them are still alive. There's a few that aren't, but most of them are still alive. It's a reliable historical fact. And we know that because it had an impact on the people who saw it, didn't it? Think of these guys, 12 Galileans, basically, that are just normal people and very fearful when Christ dies. But when they see the resurrected Christ, things change. And these guys go out and they're martyred. They're martyred for their faith, most of them. Not only that, but the history of Christianity is one of people giving their lives for this thing. It isn't a fairy tale. It stands on objective truth. Christ rose from the dead. And if you take that out, there's no, there's, no, there's no reality. It's futile. But it is reality. And so men who are fearful can be bold. People can give their lives for Christ. 70 million Christians have been killed over the years. 70 million Christians, 45 million alone in the 20th century, have been killed for their faith. This isn't a fairy tale. It's reality. And these people have given their lives for it. Otherwise, our faith would be futile. Paul goes on to say, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God. He's speaking of himself as as an apostle. And he's speaking of the apostolic witness. He said, if there's no resurrection, then we've been telling lies. We've been found to be unreliable. And, and, and we're, not, we're not really God's witnesses. We've, we've sinned against God. He's saying this, this just doesn't fit. You can't take the resurrection out of the apostolic witness because it ends up being a fairy tale, being a lie. You can't have Jesus without the resurrection. You can't have the gospel without the resurrection. You can't have Christianity without the resurrection. So that whole idea of Jesus as a good moral teacher or maybe as the apostles as good moral teachers, it, they're liars if there's no resurrection they're 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 fakes they're frauds they're either greatly deceived or they're deceiving on purpose you can it just doesn't make sense the resurrection has to remain a part of the apostolic witness and a part of the truth furthermore paul says in verse 17 and if christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sins you're still in your sins Why? You may may think, why? I thought Christ died for my sins on the cross. They were paid on the cross, weren't they? I mean, why a resurrection? Why is it necessary? Well, the resurrection is God's approval and vindication that what Christ paid for, what He did, satisfies Him. We know as we study Scripture that that God is a holy God and the wages of sin is death. That the, the, the just punishment for rebellion... Against God in all its forms and all its degrees is everlasting separation from God and the wrath of God being poured out on sin. He would not be a holy and good God if He just swept it under the rug. He must be holy. He must be perfectly holy. He's not just like you and I in how we would deal with wrongdoing. He is perfect in His justice. There's not one shade of compromise in His justice. His justice is perfect. And it must stand. He cannot skirt around his justice. He wouldn't be God. He's perfectly good, perfectly just. And so how must he respond to sinful rebels? He must punish. And if we understood the goodness of God, the infinite greatness of who he is, we would understand how his justice is perfect. He has given us great testimony of his goodness and glory. It's everywhere in creation. The fact that our hearts beat, that that we have sunny days and we have cloudy days. The fact that the trees are glorious to look at. All around us is a testimony of His goodness and His glory. So we are without excuse, Scripture says, in our rebellion against Him. So no one's going to have an excuse. He's a just God. And the penalty had to be paid. There's another part of it, though, that's important. God had made promises to His people. And God had set His affections on people before they were even created and he said i love this one i love this one i love these i love them now he did that i don't know why i mean there's nothing in us ultimately that's worthy of that he did it the reason for that resides in who he is he is a god of love a god of infinite love we can never comprehend the dimensions of his love how wide and long and high and deep is his love He I mean he's been like that forever. He'll always be like that. The source of love is God Himself. And he set his affections on people and said, I love this one. And he didn't say, I love this one because this one's extra good. This one's a little smarter than the other one, so I love that one. I mean, just look around. We know that's not true. It couldn't have been that reason. He he has loved us because he has loved us, because he is the I am. He is the source. And he made promises and he had intentions. But he also had his justice. And he has a, a predicament there. His justice, he must be just, he must be holy. His love, his deep, deep love, his infinite justice, his, his eternal love. He has both of those. And so he sent his son, his very son, God the Son, all one, the three one, one God, came and lived the perfect life, fulfilled all righteousness, satisfies God's demand for righteousness in life, in all things. He satisfied God with his life. But he didn't stop there. He went to the cross. And he satisfied God with his obedience to the point of death on a cross. And not only did he stop there, but he took your sins, the sins of all his people upon himself. And he died for them. He paid for them. He bore the wrath of God and it killed them. And it satisfied God's justice. He said on the cross, one of His last words, it is finished, it stands finished, it's accomplished, it's done. And so His love and His justice met together on the cross. They kissed together in Christ. They met together for you and for me so that God could be true and just and loving and faithful to His promises so he He could keep His covenant perfectly for our sake and for His glory. So they met together on the cross. And then he raised Christ from the dead to say, I approve. It's done. It's finished. Love and justice have met for my people. So you take the resurrection away, there's no way to know. There's no approval. There's no vindication of the Son. There's no victory over sin and death. So the resurrection is an essential part. So much so that Paul would say in Romans 4 of Christ, he was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification. He was raised so that God could justify us. God could say, I approve. You're forgiven. You're clean. You're mine. You've fulfilled all righteousness. No, though we ourselves have not, Christ has. And he, we, in Christ, are counted righteous, are called righteous by Him. We were ra- he was raised to life for our justification. So you take away the resurrection, you take away justification. It's an essential part. Amen. Paul goes on, 18, he says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It's necessary for the saints that have gone before us as well. We have no hope for those who have trusted in Christ and gone before us. We have no hope for parents. We have no hope for our heroes of the faith. We have no hope for our family. We have no hope for our children. We have no confidence that those who perish or die in Christ are with Christ if there's no resurrection. But he has been raised. He has been raised. And so my friends at Chesapeake, the bishops who lost their teenage son some years ago, have hope because there's a Savior who has died and been raised again, and they know they'll see him again. I cannot offer them, and no one can offer them hope without the resurrection. It's an essential part of the gospel. It's necessary for hope as well. Paul says in 19, If in this life we have only hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And that's true. If he didn't rise from the dead, we're just a bunch of fools here, folks. We are. I mean, why do this thing? Why meet on Sundays? I mean, there's so many other things we could be doing. You could be going fishing, you could be playing golf, or whatever else you could be doing. There's lots of other things. Why build relationships with people that are different than you? I mean, we're a diverse crowd, and may we be even more diverse. Why put in the effort to, to, to create unity by God's Spirit around the truth if this isn't true? I mean, what a bunch of dopes. I think if someone comes in and they don't believe the resurrection and, they, you know, and this is true, what are these guys doing? I mean, it's certainly unusual. It's different than the world, but what, what are they doing? I mean, why should I do that? It makes no sense. Why do these things? Why meet? Why, why go out to the loop on Fridays to share Christ and embarrass yourself in front of people? I mean, what's that about? It makes no sense. Why give... 10% or so of your money. I mean, that's crazy. I've had, that, I've had people look at my budget who don't know the Lord, and they're just like, well, what's that about? What are you doing? I mean, it, just, it makes no sense. Life does not make sense. And we are indeed to be pitied. We are, if this isn't true. But there's no need for pity. There's no need for pity. Christ has been raised from the dead. And we can stand on that, and we can be fools for him. And we can endure scorn, though we don't receive much. We can endure that. We can en- endure the puzzlement of those around us, because he has risen. And we can be patient with them and love them and help them to see what it is to be a fool for Christ. We are not to be pitied. It's necessary for us. The resurrection is necessary for us and for life in Christ. We need to know that there's a resurrection, that there's there's a bodily resurrection, that there's a future. And it isn't just floating around on clouds. I don't think we're going to do any floating around on clouds. There's nothing in the Scripture about us wearing wings and, and really not much about us playing harps. There's a future, a physical resurrection. We're going to get new bodies, and we'll get into that in our next message, but we're going to get new bodies, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and there's a future for us to look forward to because Christ is the first fruit. He's already risen from the dead. He had a body. He's ascended, and he's waiting to finish the job. And so it's necessary for us. I think of it like, in a sense, the sun. And I was just thinking about this, the the sun, you know, S-U-N, sun, we had some friends, dear friends, who moved recently to Alaska, Dave and Lisa Noble. And in Alaska, in the winter time, depending on where you are, you can get very little sun—a couple, a couple, few hours. Depending, if you're far enough north, you may just—you don't even get the sun. You just kind of get dusk and dawn, you know, and it goes back down. And if you're far enough north, you get nothing. Up in Barrow, Alaska, you get nothing. And for us as Christians, the resurrection truth and the impact is like the sun. And we can be like Alaskans in the wintertime if we're not careful. If we don't live in the reality of this blazing sun, this blazing reality of Christ risen from the dead, we're like people groping around in the dark. And you hear about the effects of lack of sun up there and the depression and so forth. And, and, and I mean, we just cannot find our way in life. And all, of, all that we're going to get basically is confusion and, and despair and things like that. But if we live in the blazing reality of the sun, if we're more like Alaska in the summertime... Which if you've heard the stories about Alaska in the summertime, in, the, in Barrow, they actually have 85 days of sunlight, 24 hours a day. Uh, the, though the growing season is short, because there's so much sun up there, they grow these cabbages that can be 100 pounds, six feet across, four feet high. That's a cabbage like this, folks, that large around. They grow turnips that are, that actually have the numbers right here, 75-pound turnips, 63-pound celery. I mean, that's got to be like this big. It's like, it's like something from Lilliput or something. I mean, just huge, huge thir, uh, 40 pound, yeah, I said turnips, rutabagas, all these huge things. That's the blazing reality of the sun, S-U-N. We are to live as Christians producing good fruit, giant-sized fruit in Him under the blazing reality of the resurrection. And there's no other way to live the Christian life without that. We must live in light of the resurrection, this blazing reality. It is necessary for us. Let's talk a little bit about the nature of the resurrection. I don't know where the time goes, but that's okay. The nature of the resurrection. Paul goes on to teach here. He says, wonderful statement, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But in fact, Christ has been raised. There's these statements in Scripture so often where the reality of our, our former life or the reality of a deception is presented and then there's the but this but that these wonderful big statements in scripture like this are so key for us but in fact Christ has been raised it makes all the difference it makes all the difference for us the the cure for life for death for sin has been found and it's available to us just think about it. if you knew the cure for cancer. Say they, they're doing research and they come up with a vaccine. Are you going to go get the vaccine? There's a vaccine for cancer, you're going to go get it. If we find a cure for aging, I don't know if I want a cure for aging, but, but the world is after that, there are people are going to line up to get that. They're doing research on that stuff, actually. It's very interesting. They don't quite know why we age. Little sidebar here. They don't quite know why we age. For some reason, we, after we get to be about 30, we start to age. And uh, you age and you, get, and you die. and They don't understand it. And they, There's all these theories they say it could be just cumulative damage. There could be some hormone you start releasing. It's, it seems like that and you get older. And people want to find ways to change this. Well, we've found a way to change it. It's called Jesus. He, he died and He rose again. And, and, and when we are His, we have the cure for aging. And that's the resurrection. We have new life to look forward to. Paul goes on to teach about the nature of this resurrection. He says that Jesus is the second Adam. He's the second Adam in verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has uh, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. He presents Christ as the second Adam. You see, there's the first Adam. God made Adam and Eve in the garden and He called them to obedience and He gave them the opportunity to obey and they didn't have sin corrupting them like it corrupts us. So they basically had the perfect opportunity to to live for God and to obey Him. And in the garden was the the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. God said, you can enjoy all this. You can can eat everything, but don't touch that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the ideal man, the first really ideal man, Adam, failed the test. He failed it really on behalf of you and I. We would not do any better than Adam did. He didn't have the corruption of sin, and he still failed. He failed, he blew it. And he is our forebearer and our representative in a sense. And he blew it. And because of him, because of his decision, and because we are in him, we're his descendants, we suffer the consequences of that. The first man, the first Adam came, and he sinned, and death came through sin, and we all die because we all sin now. But thank God there's a second Adam. One that came, same situation, put but, he, but much harder circumstances. Put here on the earth around sinful humanity with the devil himself tempting in very severe ways and yet this second Adam was successful. He's the God-man and that was God's plan to rescue us, to send the second Adam, our champion, our hero, who has overcome. He did it. He obeyed. He never failed. I mean, thank God. Thank God, He's the perfect one. He obeyed in every way. He went to the cross and He rose again. And now this second Adam comes and He welcomes those who would be in Him to to come to Him. All those who trust in Him and turn from sin are included in Him. And just as in a sense we're naturally included in the first Adam, by faith we're included in the second Adam. And Paul says that. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Romans 5, he talks about the same thing. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. He goes on, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. What a... a wonderful statement. The free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Adam came and brought death. And now Christ comes and brings life. He brings grace. The free gift. And all we need to do is turn from the the stinking mess called sin and self, turn away from that, and put our faith in Him. And we receive that free gift of righteousness. We receive life. He's the second Adam. Paul goes on to, to answer, I think, the Corinthians' and perhaps their misunderstanding. That he's the second Adam, and there's an order to how he's doing it. You see, the Corinthians might have thought, well, why not now? I mean, Christ came, and he rose, and then he ascended. Why isn't it that, you know, when we become Christians, we boom get the new body right away, the resurrection body, and we all go to live in Israel or something like that? I mean, why doesn't it happen that way? Uh, and there might have been some people that thought it happened somehow like that. And so Paul answers them. There's an order. Verse 23 but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to him. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, and then it goes on to speak of God putting everything under him. And then when Christ reigns to the point where he has conquered all enemies and that ultimate enemy death, then he'll, he'll turn the kingdom over to the Father. And all glory will go to the Father. And we'll see that it's through him, from him, through him, and to him is all glory. So there's an order. There's a process here. And that should be a comfort to us, particularly as we look forward to the impending reality of our own death Physically. Particularly as we contemplate the death of loved ones in the Lord. There's hope for us. There's an order. There's a reason that they die and then they go to be with the Lord and then later on we'll receive new bodies and we'll receive perfection. And it's hard. It's hard to face that. It's hard to deal with that reality. Because we miss them, because we feel, in a sense, the taste of death there, and we're not made for death, we're made for life. It's still hard, but there's hope because the first fruits have already been shown in Christ. He has risen. And so we look forward to that. And when all things are finished, when He has accomplished all things, when He reigns to the point where He's put all the enemies under His feet, that last enemy death will be taken care of. And there'll be life. There's an order to what He's doing. There's sense to what He's doing now. He's reigning. He's ruling. He's accomplishing things. There's a goal in all this. He wants to bring glory to the father he wants to vanquish all his enemies and he's going to do that and he's reigning right now he's reigning right now he's working in his church right now he's got things to do right now to conquer his enemies and the means that he does that is through his church by the power of the spirit through the gospel through the proclamation of the gospel so he's reigning and he's extending his reign now and he's bringing the truth of the gospel to all nations says in Matthew that the gospel will be preached to all peoples and then the end will come. He's got work to do. He's got neighbors around us to win for Christ. We must live in light of that. We must live in light of the reality that he has a plan now. He has work to do. And the people around us are, are part of what he's doing. He wants to bless them and just display his goodness and glory regardless. But he also wants to win his lost sheep to himself. And that would be the people around us. So let us operate in light of that. That we're here on a mission. To see people one to Christ. He is reigning now through his church and bringing glory and subjugating his enemies. And then it will conclude in the very end when every knee bows, every tongue confesses, and he destroys death. So there's an order. And then Paul talks about at the end in verses 29 on about the fruit of this truth. He talks about the fruit in other people's lives, he talks about the fruit in his life, and then he talks about really the Corinthians, the fruit in their lives. First he says in verse 29 something that can be confusing, probably one of the harder verses to understand in Scripture. He transitions from verse 28 to 29 to talk about the fruit of the, the resurrection. He says, otherwise, why do people, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And that may seem puzzling. It is a difficult verse. There are some, some verses. There are not that many verses in Scripture that are difficult to understand, but this would be one of them. And the uh, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, believe that, that this is some practice where you're, you're baptized vicariously on the behalf of dead people. And so that's part of why they have a big pool, a big uh, library looking into genealogy and stuff is because they want to find all the people that have died and they want someone to be baptized on their behalf so that they can somehow make them go to heaven. That's not not what's going on here, from what I can tell. Some have said, well, maybe the Corinthians were doing this and it was wrong, but Paul refers to it just to make a point. I think Paul was a pretty wise leader. I don't think he'd introduce a controversial topic in one sentence and then move on, because it would bring confusion. I think the best explanation of this that I've found is that Paul is referring to the reality of baptism, that for the believer... We are baptized, in a sense, our bodies are part of the sacrament of baptism, expressing the reality of our union with Christ. And in baptism, we express that we have died with him and we will be raised with him to receive new bodies. And so, in a sense, our dead bodies, that, these bodies that we will shed for new ones, undergo baptism. And that's what I think he may be meaning, being baptized on behalf of the dead, the dead being us, the baptism one who is baptized this is the view held by the early greek fathers this is the view that best fits in with the rest of scripture the best fits in with paul's teaching in romans 8 he says in verse 10 but if christ is in you although the body is dead because of sin the spirit is alive because of righteousness so so our bodies in a sense are dead And, and so there's it seems to fit best now we don't build a whole lot on a verse that's not totally clear like that. But that's the best understanding I would have. And so Paul's basically saying, guys, if you got baptized and you expressed in baptism your death, death to sin and your new life and new life for your body and your, your dead body was part of that, I mean, if there's no resurrection, what's baptism about? So that's what I think he's saying here. He goes on to speak of his own life. Verse 30, Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's saying, my life doesn't make sense as an apostle without the resurrection. Paul went through so many things. He, he suffered very much. And you can look in Second Corinthians 11. That speaks of his suffering. He suffered must, much for them. He even, even, I think, in saying, I protest, brothers, that by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, the Lord, I die every day. He's saying, I protest, folks, by the fact that, that I, you are my pride, you are my joy, you are my boast, you are my reward. I mean, look at your lives. It's, it's evidence of the resurrection in my life because I went through much and I die every day for you so that you could be a church, so that you could exist. Paul was a, an example of a living martyr, and eventually a martyr who was killed. A living martyr in some ways is harder than a a dead martyr because you have to live life dying. And Paul lived a life of dying for Christ and sacrificing much because he believed there was indeed a resurrection and it was all worth it. We are called to the same. We are called to the same. Not to the degree, there's nobody quite like Paul, but we are all called to risk our lives for him because it's worth it, because he has risen. And so Paul brings this to bear on their behavior. Bad company ruins good morals. Do not be deceived, he says. That if you guys continue to believe the resurrection as you do, it leads to to immorality. It leads to abusing the body and not caring about what you do, what sort of sin you do in the body. It leads to emptying the gospel of its essential parts. And so he makes the connection and he's concerned for them. Uh, Just in closing, I want to touch on a few things for us. Because we are in danger of neglecting this truth. We are in danger of not living by the blazing reality, the amazing reality of the resurrected Son of God. We are in danger of living in Alaska in the wintertime and trying to do the Christian life. And He wants us to live in that reality. And just a few things, as I meditated on this, I thought of from Scripture. Implications of the resurrection for our lives. How we are to live in light of the resurrection. One is... The resurrection gives us a right perspective on the physical realm. Okay, It gives us a right perspective on the physical realm. You see, Jesus was risen, raised bodily. Not not spiritually only, but bodily. And he ascended bodily to heaven. And he is eternally the Son of God. He's eternally physical. He's eternally God with a body, with a physical body. God cares about the physical. The resurrection teaches us that. Creation should teach us that too. God desired to express his glory. He just didn't create a bunch of ideas and something spiritual and ethereal. He created creation, physical things, to display his glory. So the physical means very much. And our future is not a spiritual future only. It's physical. Scripture teaches us he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to renew all things. And we're going to live on the earth. And you can you can investigate in your Bibles, look in Revelation, look in in Matthew, look throughout the scriptures. That's what it would teach. We're going to live in a new earth. So we go to heaven in a sense to be well, actually to be with Him. But when the end comes, when He's destroyed death, there's going to be a new earth. We're going to live on the earth. And I don't know what it's going to be like, but there's going to be physical things. It's going to be great. I hope there's trees. I hope there's oceans. I hope that we do a lot of the things that we do. Uh, I've said this before, Jonathan Edwards believed that the things that we learn now and do now, we're going to benefit from there. And I think, I I used to do science, and I loved it. I hope I get to do science again in the new earth. I hope I get to get test tubes out and and do experiments and learn about God's glorious creation. That's the sort of thing we're going to have. We're going to live in a physical world. God cares about the physical world. And so we need to understand as Christians that that is part of God's plan. They're not separate. We can be in danger of, of being... Spiritual, in a sense, and neglecting the physical. And not enjoying the current physical and not looking forward to the future physical. You can worship in enjoying God's creation and enjoying the physical. That's part of what we're called to. I think of you guys who have gifts and crafts. I think of Tim with his painting, fine painting ability. I mean, that's worship of God. And that's how God designed it. It's not You're not somehow doing something less worthy if you're, if you're not praying or doing something what we typically call spiritual. You can paint and do things physical. You can, you can, Tim and I, as families, a bunch of us went up and did cliff diving in New Hampshire behind the Mount Washington Hotel. And that was glorious. And it was worship to God. I mean, it was great. So the resurrection gives us the right perspective on the physical, that God cares about the physical. That's important. That's important. It also gives us purpose in trials because God is doing something. We have... A trajectory. We have a destination. And he uses trials. We've been been purchased by Christ, by his death, and by his resurrection to be his. And now he uses trials to conform us to his image. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's a trajectory. There's a, a, a point that God's taking us to. He wants to make us like his son, his resurrected son. And so he's he's purposeful in life to use trials to work that out. And so we can endure trials knowing he's doing something good and glorious. I was just reading a poem by Ann Bradstreet. Uh, Anyone know who Ann Bradstreet is? She's a Merrimack Valley resident lived about 400 years ago here. Um, she's lived in what is now North Andover, and she was a believer. And she wrote a wonderful poem um, after her house burned down. And uh, she's pretty famous as far as one of the early poets of our country and stuff. And, and just seeing her in that poem, I encourage you to read it. I, I had it. Uh, I can show it maybe later. I don't have time for it now. But, but it's a wonderful poem where she was able to deal with the, the hardship of having her house burned down and all the heartache and in the, the poem so wonderful because you see her heartache but then she, she was able to turn it back to say God I have a home that doesn't burn down that's eternal in the heavens and so knowing that knowing the, the resurrection is truth and living in that reality helps us to endure trials and it helps us to pursue Christ likeness because that's where he that's what he's doing that's our destination the resurrection is our future the resurrected Christ. He wants to conform us to his image. And so Paul in that same section in Philippians 3 says that um, not only have I, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal. For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul was striving and living for that future. He was looking forward to what God would do. He was doing what he could by God's grace to be conformed to the image of of Christ. And that's what we're called to. And by recognizing that's our future, that's our destination, we will pursue Christlikeness. And if the band could come up as we close. As a young believer, I uh, realized in in coming to Christ that I had spent 17 years doing terrible things. And I used to, when I was first a Christian, before I would sleep, I, I would pray, Lord, I pray that I could wake up and find myself eight years old again, so that I could do it right in the knowledge of you. I was constantly looking back with regret. And it wasn't helpful, and God never answered my prayer. Um, But that's not God's ways. He's able to use the past for his purposes. And our section here, in the reality of the resurrection, said we're not even to be oriented backwards. We're to be oriented forwards. We're to be oriented towards our destination. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You cannot walk the path if your eyes aren't fixed on what's ahead. Some of us may be trying to walk down the road backwards. Jesus is this way, and we're trying to go backwards. We're looking back to where we were. And he has a future for us. And if you walk that way, you're going to trip. You're going to fall. You're you're, you're not going to make it. You're not going to walk straight. But if you turn your eyes around and realize this is my destiny, this is where God's leading me, this is my future, Christ resurrected, me being conformed to His image, receiving a new body, a new inheritance in Him, then you'll be able to walk the life. And that's what Paul did. When we recognize that is our destiny, that's who we are, we're able to live life differently. We're able to live life in the blazing blazing reality of the resurrected Son of God. So uh, in light of that, let's close. Just a question I want to leave you with is, are you living life in that reality? Is the resurrection a blazing light in your life that's shaping who you are, that's that's changing your perspective of the Christian life? Or is it like northern Alaska? Something that maybe is just a dull glow on the horizon. Maybe it's not even there. God wants it to be full 24-7 shining bright in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for you have done it. You're the one who's conquered sin and death. You've been raised from the dead and you are victorious over sin and death and you're reigning right now and you will finish the job, finish the work. And I pray you'd help us to live in light of this reality, Lord. I pray for each one here that we will go out this week living in the brightness of your resurrection 24-7 by your grace and to your glory we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's close with one song.